On the first uh, Sunday that I was here, I brought a message called uh, Amazed by Grace. Last week, the message was entitled Scandalised by Grace. And uh, I want to continue on this theme of grace this morning by talking about being motivated by grace, being motivated by grace. Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we've sung of your amazing love today. Earlier days, we've sung of your amazing grace. And we pray that as we contemplate once again the wonders of your love and grace towards us, that indeed we might grow in grace and in our knowledge and love of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That our time of meditation will enable us to do that. In his name. Amen. Motivation. Motivation, or perhaps the lack of it, impacts on everything we do, doesn't it? Perhaps, uh, like me, you wonder sometimes, what is it that motivates uh, Olympic athletes to spend all their hours, their waking hours, all the hours they do in swimming or uh, running or weightlifting or whatever? What is it that's motivated uh, Ian Thorpe and Michael Clem and now Libby Trickett and uh, uh, Jeff Hugel to, to come out of retirement and go through all that grind again? What motivates people to do that sort of thing? In all the uh, political uh, upheaval that's on at the moment, what is it that motivates people to go into politics? Um, you think about the, the flack that you cop whatever side of politics you're on. Why would you do it? It's a pretty thankless task. What is it that motivates people to want to try and rise to the top of the corporate ladder? You know, to be the CEO of some multinational company. What, what is it that motivates people to commit the most horrendous crimes? What is it that motivates people to do stupid, illogical things? But there is a motivation, whatever it is, however much or little we understand it, we are motivated to do things. But more importantly than a consideration of any of those particular motivations, what, if you're a Christian, what motivates you in your life as a Christian? What motivates you in your life as a Christian? Why do you want to go ahead? Why do you want to make progress in your Christian life? Assuming that you and surely you do. Because, you know, it's easy to be motivated by the wrong thing. We can be motivated by, motivated by fear or by guilt uh, or, or pride or a sense of our own importance, a sense of obligation. All of those can be motivating factors. But what really should motivate us, I suggest to you, what really should motivate us is God's grace, God's amazing grace. And I want us to consider this proposition that our motivation should come from God's grace under three headings. Uh, firstly, we can think about getting it half right. Well, that's if you're an optimist. Getting it half wrong if you're a pessimist. Getting it half right or half wrong. Then getting it completely wrong 
or hopefully, thirdly, getting it completely right. Let's consider the, the half full, half empty uh, situation first of all. And I believe it's easy for us to be only half right when we're thinking about being motivated by God's grace. And what I mean is this. We know, don't we, that we're saved by grace. If we're saved, if we're one of God's children, then it's all God's doing. It's God's grace that has done it. We sang last week, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. No other way of being saved. That's the half that we get right. But uncertainty, uncertainty about the answer to that question in all its fullness can lead to the first classic mistake in the Christian life. The first classic mistake. That is this, I know I'm a sinner who's been saved by grace. So far, so good. But I'll only stay in that state of grace if I work at it. That's the second half. And that's not so good. It's, like, it, it's importing into the Christian life the concept that sporting teams use, and quite rightly use. Uh, you only stay in the team as long as you're good enough. Uh, and to show you're good enough, you've got to score enough runs or kick enough goals or, or, or break records or whatever it is. That's okay in the sporting life, the sporting field. But that is not grace. It's not grace in the Christian life. In fact, it's a serious misunderstanding of grace. You see, my salvation, your salvation, is all God's work from beginning to end. Or as I said, there's really no end. From beginning to eternity, it's all God's work. Not half God's work and half mine. Let me convince you of that from Scripture. Uh, if you wanted to, feel free, but uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I tried deliberately to emphasise the he. The pronoun he was there a number of times, but not once was the pronoun I there. He, it's God's work. Or Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, I can find God's name there for what's being done, but I can't find mine. Well, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And who does the he refer to? Of course, it refers to the Lord Jesus and only to Jesus. John Newton said it well. His grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. So there's the, the first um, half right, half wrong, if you like. I know I'm a sinner saved by grace, but I only stay in that state of grace if I work at it. No, it's all of grace. 
But there's another uncertainty that comes into answering that question as well. Uh, And it's still to do with what happens after I'm saved by grace. And that can lead to the second classic mistake. True, I, I know I'm a sinner who's been saved by grace. So now I can just live any way I want. That's the reasoning that the Jews used. We're God's chosen people. So we can really do what we like. But brethren, that is not grace. Not grace. In fact, it's a serious misunderstanding of God's grace. The Christian is to live an obedient life, not to gain salvation, but because he's been saved. That's the crucial difference, not to gain salvation, but because he's been given salvation. Again, let me convince you from scripture. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 18. What then are we to sin? What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Is the very question. By no means, Paul says, by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Why would you want to go back to where you were before you were saved? Which is a position of utter despair. Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 10, we just had verses 8 and 9. Now verse 10, for we are his, that is of course God's, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You notice that that verse comes immediately after the verses that tell us that we're saved by grace, through faith. But it's not saying that we have to Add to it. Some of you will have heard of Augustine, uh, who back in, I think, the 4th century, very famous uh, Christian, uh, and he liked to come up with, with neat little sayings to encapsulate various teachings, and perhaps a little bit too cleverly. But nevertheless, correctly, he said, love God and do as you like. Love God and do as you like. By which he meant, if you truly love God, then doing what you like will be doing what God likes. Yeah, I think perhaps just, anyhow. You see, so when it comes to God's grace, you and I need to avoid the the half-empty, half-full conundrum, don't we? Because both of them are badly flawed. Both of them are badly flawed. Well, if we need to avoid being half right and half wrong, then there's another alternative to be avoided as well, and that's to avoid being completely wrong. And that brings us to the point of the parable that Jesus told in response to Peter's question in Matthew chapter 18. Remember, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And you see, that that question, Peter asks, follows on from what Jesus had said earlier. If your brother sins against you, then, you know, fix it up. 
I wonder if Peter thought he was being extremely generous by suggesting that he should go so far as to forgive his brother seven times. Let me put the question a little differently. Lord, how many times should my wife forgive me? I'm glad there's not an upper limit of seven. After 46 years of married life, yeah, I'm glad Jesus didn't say, yes, Peter, seven times is quite sufficient. You don't need to go any further. In fact, Jesus' answer, I'm sure, goes far beyond Peter's wildest dreams. I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. 70 times seven. Some versions, by the way, and this one has a footnote as well, uh, Some versions say 77 times rather than 70 times 7. But either way, you see, it's not really the number that counts because surely a forgiving nature wouldn't keep count. A forgiving nature wouldn't keep count, would it? And then Jesus illustrates Peter's question with this parable about the unforgiving servant. And as with all parables, it has one main point. One main point. And and it's to do with forgiveness, obviously. It's to do with forgiveness. Let me just ask you a a series of simple questions, uh, which you can answer out loud or just in your minds. What did the first man have to do? He had to ask for forgiveness, didn't he? He owed his master this enormous amount of money. In no way of repaying it, he had to ask forgiveness for forgiveness. And what happened? He was forgiven. Simple as that. He had to ask for forgiveness and he was given forgiveness. What did the second man have to do? He had to ask for forgiveness. Just the same as the first one. And what should have happened? Notice I say this time what should have happened. Well, of course, he should have been forgiven. Do you notice when we read it that uh, the second servant who asks for forgiveness uses exactly the same words as the first one. The first man who owed this enormous amount of money, he fell on his knees and he said, be patient with me and I will pay back everything. If you go down to verse 29... The second servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. And the same thing should have happened both times. Forgiveness was asked for. Forgiveness should have been given. To remind you of the Lord's Prayer, there's a petition, isn't there, in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our sins or forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin or who trespass against us or who are indebted to us. In other words, if God forgives us the enormous debt that we owe him, then forgiving our fellows should be a breeze, shouldn't it? I'm not saying it is, but by comparison it should be. Um, It's difficult in this because it talks about um, talents and denarii, neither of which we use. Although denarii, this word we said for those who can still remember the pound, shillings and pence, the D, that's where it came from. Uh, So 
The second man owed a few pence, we could say. The first man, he owed millions, millions. And uh, there's, there's the difference, which doesn't come out, I suppose, unless you know what the talent is worth and what the denarius is worth. But there's this contrast between this enormous debt and this trifling debt. Perhaps you've heard of uh, South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. One of its purposes was to deal with the anger and the hurt that apartheid had caused. And a man named Dowie Ackerman went to a Truth and Reconciliation Commission hearing that was held in relation to the murder of his wife. And during that hearing, the men actually admitted their guilt and asked Ackerman to forgive them. And Ackerman did so, there and then. And he said, he said, look, I forgave them unconditionally because they've asked for it. God has forgiven us. All we have to do is ask for it. They've asked for forgiveness, and so I've given it to them. There's a man called uh, Reverend Professor Dr. Nigel Lee, uh, who has, I think, about 15 degrees after his name, very well qualified. Presbyterian. Uh, he's retired now, but uh, his father uh, was in South Africa and his father was, was murdered uh, in his home. And Nigel Lee deliberately went across from Australia to South Africa and, and met up with the murderer uh, in prison. And in God's grace, uh, Nigel Lee, who was able to lead his father's murderer to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that forgiveness came not just from God but from Nigel Lee as well. No half measures. No half measures there, were there? Hopefully you and I will never be put in that sort of position, but could we do what he did if we were? Well, we've dealt with uh, half right, half wrong, and completely wrong, and, and, and we've actually anticipated getting it right completely, haven't we? But as with our earlier considerations, let go, let's go to God's word for confirmation. And I don't think it'll surprise you that in the passages that I, I, I've picked here, the word then or the word therefore uh, uh, is either included or implied in these passages. Because something has happened, therefore something else should happen. You see, this, and I'm talking, we're talking about the grace of God and growing in the grace of God. The grace of God should affect our relationships. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint, a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The grace of God should affect our relationships. The grace of God should govern our behaviour. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13 for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. The grace of God should govern our behaviour as well as our relationships. The grace of God, in fact, should be transforming a transforming grace. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The grace of God should be transforming as well as affecting our relationships and governing our behaviour. But the grace of God should govern even our financial affairs. When Paul wrote his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 8, verses 7 to 9, he wrote, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And all that is in the context of giving to the work of the gospel. The grace of God should govern our financial affairs. And the grace of God should stimulate our praying. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. The grace of God should stimulate our praying. And the grace of God indeed should be constantly in our minds. But grow, here we had it in Second Peter, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. So if we understand God's grace, if we grasp the impact that God's grace has had on our lives, if we know that it is by God's grace that we are saved, then it will profoundly influence and control every aspect of our lives, won't it? Let me finish by returning to where we began, with motivation. And the question, what motivates you in your Christian life? You see, it's very easy to be motivated by much lesser impulses than grace. There's guilt. Some people are plagued by thoughts that they are not worthy of a relationship with God, and that's true. We're not. But we have to avoid that thinking because God is offering you a relationship with himself because of his grace shown towards you in Jesus Christ. So 
your or my unworthiness is out of the picture. But then there's fear. Some people are fearful that God just couldn't possibly love them. But it's not about us being good enough for God to love. So we need to jettison that thinking as well. God couldn't love you any more than he loves you in Jesus. And then there are some people who think of obligation. Uh, The Christian life, it's all about paying God back for what he's done. There's some sort of repayment scheme. Just give me enough time, Lord, and I'll wipe out the debt. And again, we need to get past that type of thinking because there's nothing to repay. Nothing to repay. Grace is a wonderful topic, uh, a wonderful subject. And I doubt that this side of heaven will ever fully understand God's grace. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't work on it, does it? Let's pray. Father, the more we consider your grace towards us sinners, shown to us in the Lord Jesus, the more wonderful, uh, the more matchless and infinite and uh, it becomes and uh, so amazing. We pray, therefore, that uh, as grace has brought us safe thus far, so grace will lead us home to you and that our lives will be more and more uh, touched by a contemplation of your, ga- your grace and motivated by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. We've already sung in an earlier service of Amazing Grace, but John Newton wrote about it in another way. And so uh, hymn number 387, we'll use the same tune as before, but uh, God's grace is 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 a cause for rejoicing. So rejoice, believer, in the Lord who makes your cause his own. The hope that's built upon his word can ne'er be overthrown. 300 and 87.
Sure.